Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Romans 13. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. Hear the word of God. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today to come and worship you and hear your word preached. Be with Pastor Matthew, not only this morning, but throughout his week as he studies and prepares for this moment. Give him wisdom and put your words in his mouth. I pray that wherever we find ourselves today, we would come away from this time refreshed and rejuvenated for another week. Lord, empower us to walk in love towards one another to put on Christ, our hope, our joy, and our perfect righteousness as our protection from the temptations of the flesh and the deeds of darkness. May we look to you who fulfilled the law by loving us perfectly so that we might be enabled by your grace and through your spirit to love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dave Hinkle, you gave us a very good theological word a number of weeks ago. What was that word? Wow. Wow. (laughs) I love Grace Church. I love Grace Church. I love this place. I think there's already a fulfillment of Danny's prayer, certainly in my life. I I am refreshed. I am rejuvenated. I, le- I love our worship team. Ethan, Evan, Brian, Emily, Timothy, Hadassah. Right? I love our, didn't they do a great job this morning already? Oh, we have been so richly served and blessed. There's just so many. Y'all are just so awesome. You didn't know you were going to get that today, did you? I'll say it every week if you just keep coming back. (laughs) I think we've all had one of those mornings where the alarm goes off and you wake up, but you haven't really woken up, right? The heaviness of sleep and tiredness weighs you down, pulling you back underneath the warm covers. It feels 
Sometimes to me, like it's an anchor, Tom, that's just pulling me back down to just be enveloped by slumber. But then, Tom, yes, I, I fight my way up. This is what we do, right? Because we have, res- we have those dogged responsibilities. You shake your head and, right, like you try to orient yourself as, as what? <laughs> Sometimes I think like my brain is a, is a really old laptop that takes like a long time to come online all the way. Like you're waiting for that little beach ball of death. Like is it ever going to come all the way up? I mean, have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled some mornings? To, have you ever sat at the edge of your bed and you're like, what day is it? And then you think to yourself, as a righteous believer in Jesus, coffee. I need strong coffee. That experience, I think, is a helpful metaphor. For we face the real danger of drifting our way through our lives. Weighed down by a kind of grogginess to what's really going on around us. A kind of slumbering, lumbering over the years. Never really understanding the time. The significance of the moment that we're living in. Rightly orienting ourselves on the timeline of history. And the scriptures are filled with warnings. This bit of text from the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 to 8, 8 to 14 is, is among them that, that act as kind of an alarm clock serving to awaken us from that kind of existential sleep. They're that, maybe Romans 13, 8 to 14 can be that cup of strong coffee for you this morning or that, you know, what I do every morning as I walk down the hallway into the bathroom and immediately start splashing water onto my face. After having heard Danny read it, may, maybe your mind, my mind did this week, went back to Romans 12. Because in Romans 12, Paul addressed the time that we're living in as he began that chapter. He spoke of it as, do you remember? You can look there. Make sure your Bibles are open. And listen, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, I just want to say right now, there, there are Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're, they're in front of you. And listen, there ain't no shame in going to the table of contents. Okay? And maybe you've been in the Bible for 10 years and like someone says, hey, turn to Hosea and you're like, I have no idea where Hosea is. That's okay. I fight my way there too. All right? There's no shame in searching the table of contents to find Romans 12. But get your nose there. Paul spoke of it as this age, as this present age, the old world, rumbling on as it has since the fall. And he's aware that most people don't see beyond their present. And so they live their lives in accordance with the habits and styles and customs of the present time because they don't know any other way. It's what is. I'm just in this time, so just live this way. Paul's been making it clear that (laughs) the new world has broken in. The world of King Jesus. A new kingdom has broken in. God's new age has already begun. And the times, 
they are a changing. And Paul means to instruct us on just what the styles, habits, and customs are which mark this new age, which mark this new time. You see, a new day has dawned. Don't you love when a new day dawns? Just all spanking. It's like a new little infant, just all clean and unsoiled. It's a new day. I love new days. I love new beginnings. The thing that the scriptures say about this new day is that it's not yet fulfilled, which creates its own set of challenges, but it is here. And the question is, will we, will we awaken to its realities? Paul is clear that he already has been. Don't be conformed to what? This time. But be what? Transformed. Live new in this new time. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, what we find in chapter 13 should come as no surprise, for he has already more than tipped his hand. He has clearly, he, he turns the cards as I'm showing you all my cards. Remember, a key, a key marker of this new time. He's told us in chapter 12, verse 9, a key marker for transformed and awakened people is to what? Love sincere. So we learned two weeks ago. This trait of disciples of Jesus is so important for the times that we are living in, so counter to this present age, that Paul spent chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, elaborating on what he meant by love, sincere. And he says, well, you know, it's so important, I'm coming right back to it again now in chapter 13. It's so important. As he draws these ethical exhortations for Christians in this section to a close, and as he does, he wants us to see, listen, here's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see the central nature of love in light of the times. The central nature of love in light of the times. C- can we call it love in the last day? Let's, let's do that, okay? Love and the last day. Look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Look at what Paul just said. Pay your obligations to everyone. In other words, Paul says, don't let there be any outstanding debts. There are, there are certain commitments in life, and you have to fill them. So have clean books. Let there be no accounts payable. Live life in the black. Now, <laughs> that's a pretty countercultural sentiment in our age, isn't it? A wash in debt. And then Paul says, do not owe anyone anything except, well, wait, what? Paul, you just argued, pay your obligations to everybody, which is, after all, the strong exhortation of all of the scriptures warns all over the place about debts, about giving someone else power over you because you've become indebted to them. This is a strong teaching of the scriptures. And after all of that, after what you've said, after all of the scriptures, you're presenting an exception to debt? Well, says Paul, as I argue with him in my study, we have these conversations, Paul and I. Yes, says Paul, but... Maybe not the kind of exception that you were thinking. You see, there is a good kind of obligation to have. 
a kind of debt that you will always carry on the books, a debt that you will never, ever, ever be able to pay off. And it is this, love one another. Paul is expanding on love sincere. Chapter 12, verse 9. He's elaborating on love one another deeply. Chapter 12, verse 10. And he's laying in a foundation for what he's going to explain next when it comes to living with each other's differences that we're to be acting in love. Chapter 14, verse 15. In the words of one scholar, love is at the epicenter of Pauline ethics. Now, why would that be the case? Because love is at the foundation of the Torah and love is at the foundation of the teaching of Jesus. Just what was Jesus' teaching about love? What did he instruct about who the one another is? One need only to remember a couple of instances in the life of our king when he made this abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. One was when some religious leaders and, and experts, note that, experts in the law had gathered around Jesus to question it. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 22. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 22 with me. Verse 35. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Which then I think he's a little bit snooty when he says this. Teacher. Which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, I picture Jesus not hesitating at all. I don't think he has to think about this. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder. Can I get a lifeline? Can I call someone? Jesus said to him, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all of your mind, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets depend, are sourced from, Empowered by these two commands. So who is the other that we must love according to Jesus? Who is it? Love God? Love neighbor? Which immediately brings, brought another story to my mind. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I want you to see these connections. Verse 25. When we get to this story, we find yet another expert in the law who questions Jesus, tests Jesus, asks Jesus. He asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
which is a pretty important question, isn't it? Is there a more important question? And Jesus throws the question right back on the expert. Do do you love when people answer your question with a question? (laughs) But he does. And we hear this expert in response to Jesus throwing back the question on him provide the same answer that we read Jesus give in Matthew. Love God, love neighbor. That's what I must do to inherit eternal life. To which Jesus replies, correct. (laughs) Well done. Now here's this, here's this little thing, just a little thing. Do it. (laughs) Okay, think about this. Have you ever made it through a day loving the Lord your God with all your, all, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do it. (laughs) Good night. Do this and you will live now and forever. What is Jesus doing? Don't don't miss what Jesus is doing. Jesus is commanding an ethic. He's commanding an ethic. An ethic is the way that we live our lives, the way we behave, his guidelines. And and feeling all clever, because he's an expert in the law, right? Wishing the text says, look at it, to justify himself, in other words, in other words, what he wants Jesus to do is define love in such a way that it meets the categories of the people he's already loving. Who's my neighbor? Please point out all these people that I like and are easy to love. Please tell me they're my neighbors. So I can stand justified having done what you've commanded. What is what does Jesus answer when he says, who is, who is my neighbor? Tell me, Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, it's a parable, isn't it? If you've been around the church any amount of time, if you've read the scriptures, even if you haven't been around the church and haven't read the scriptures, you've probably heard the term good Samaritan. You've probably heard the story of the good Samaritan. And in this parable, we see a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite ignoring a person deeply in need and on death's door. Homeless at the moment. And they show no self-giving. They exhibit no self-sacrifice. It is only when a Samaritan, a person all the Jews listening to Jesus would immediately turn their nose up at as religiously compromised half-breeds. It's only when a Samaritan comes by that the needy, dying person is cared for, is loved. And in this, Jesus says, the Samaritan proved to, this is interesting, to be a neighbor. Now, how did the Samaritan prove to be a neighbor? By loving the neighbor who God had placed right in front of him. That's how he proved to be a neighbor. So, if we look to Jesus to answer the question, who is Paul telling us to love? We must not weaken this instruction by Paul. 
with vague notions. See, here's the thing that we do sometimes. We see this text, we hear this text, we go, oh man, you know, I just, I love everybody. I just, you know, I just love. I'm just so filled with love. I just love everybody. Oh, that doesn't work. That's abstract. It's just vague. You're not really putting it into practice. You're not loving the person, right? They just, no, I just love everybody. I wonder what your wife would say. I wonder what your coworker would say. I wonder what your crazy uncle would say. Right? Don't we all have a crazy uncle? Do we all have a crazy uncle in our families? And by the way, if you don't have a crazy uncle in your family that you're aware of, you're probably the crazy uncle. Okay? We must love the one another neighbor whom God has placed in front of us. We must love our parents. We must love our in-laws. We must love our crabby co-worker. We must love our wife. We must love the elders that God has placed over us in the church. We must love all sorts of people that God has made, our brothers and sisters in our church family, including the ones we find difficult to love. And by the way, have you ever considered the fact that you may be difficult to love? I remember when my wife read a book written by Sarah Edwards. The book was titled, Marriage to a Difficult Man. (laughs) And she said to me, I relate to her. I didn't think that was very nice. (laughs) But she loves me. Why do we do this? Why should we do this? Because it is right to love. Look back at Romans 13, if you haven't turned back there yet. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans 13. For the one who loves... Another has fulfilled the law. That's cataclysmic. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I hear King Jesus. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about a chiasm? See what he did there? Who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Paul has mentioned the word love five times at this point in the text. As that scholar said earlier, right, we're seeing it now. Love is at the epicenter of Paul's ethics. Epicenter. Doesn't get more crucial then, right? Something that's the epicenter. Doesn't get more central doesn't get more foundational for Paul. And as we have seen, I think, for Jesus, which means it's pretty important to know just what in the world does this word mean? Love? Maybe right now, if you're from my generation, you want to turn to your neighbor and say, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. 
<laughs> I just couldn't resist. <laughs> and if you, if you had done that, that would have been really awkward in the service. It was awkward enough me doing it up here. But if they did, how would you answer? How would you define it? Because the word has gotten awfully squishy in our culture. And I'm not talking just about the culture out there, folks. I'm talking about the culture in here. It's gotten very squishy in our church culture, in our Christian culture. But we cannot be squishy on this because there's too much. It's the epicenter of ethics. There's, there's too much that depends on our understanding what love actually is. Love, agape, in the original, Here's, here's, my, so here's my attempt. Love is selfless. Love is self-giving. Love denies its own desires in order to do the best thing for its neighbor. Love, therefore, looks outward. Love sets its eyes on Jesus and the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1, and copies those mercies and the self-giving love of Jesus himself. Love has an interest in others. Love produces in someone the ability for them not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, Romans 12, 13. Love does this, not always, but often. At its best, love does this with warmth. Affection. Care. Cherishing. And love never fails. Jesus knew that all of the law and the prophets could be summed up in two commands. Love God. Love your neighbor. And it's why Paul is following his lead. What else could he do? He's affirming that teaching. He's saying that these and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now why, does, why can Paul say this? How is love the backbone and source of all obedience and law keeping? Because Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's how it is the fulfillment of the law. Christopher Ash writes, Love integrates and focuses the will of God for how human beings are to treat one another. If I want to know what this means in practice, I look to the commandments, right? That helps me work it out. But love is what holds it all together. As the new covenant people of God, it it may be that we think that the old covenant no longer applies to us. Maybe you walked in this morning, you're on live stream, and that's your theology. Why, why are you even bringing up all these commandments? Right? Like, I'm in Jesus. I don't have to even read the Old Testament anymore. I don't need the law. Hasn't Paul just argued that we're free from the law? In one sense, we are, and in a very another real important sense, we are not because the commandments represent the very character and righteousness of the God we love. Amen. And so if we want 
to be more like that God and display his mercies. We look to the law and we see what he looks like in the law. Brian Rosner says, the law is still a helpful starting point for ethical practice. (laughs) Without actual commands, love is just empty sentimentality without any content or conviction. That's so helpful. That's the squishiness of love in the culture, right? Because love in the culture, I'll love you as long as you're lovable, and then I can just tap out. Because, right? (laughs) You You know what I ask married couples, when, when Susan and I go out with them, when we do premarital counseling, when we do marital counseling, you know what I ask? I, I ask, do you, are you in like with each other right now? Because I'm going to assume if you're a Christian, you're going to love each other and that's going to hold you together. But, but we're not always going to like each other. Wife, have you ever not liked your husband? Husband, have you ever not liked your wife? But you still love her. That's what biblical love does. It doesn't tap out just because you don't like the person anymore. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? If you think, how, how does that work? It's like, well, love your neighbor, but then there's all this law. But where does that actually appear? In the commands. Leviticus 19.18. It's actually part of Torah. So the law commands love and love fulfills the purposes of Torah. Brian Rosner goes on to say, if in Romans 8, Jesus fulfills the law for us. Oh, Danny, thank you for praying that way. The Bible supports our sister's prayer. Jesus fulfills the law for us. And yet in Romans 13, we see that Jesus fulfills the law through us. Do you see it? Here in the text, love fulfills the purpose of Torah. We see it here. Because I love my wife more than I love myself, I will not have sex with another woman. Because I love another person who is also made in the image of God and is therefore of inestimable value, I will not murder another person. Because I love another human and celebrate what God has provided to them, I will not steal what is theirs and not mine. Because I love another and desire their best and am not centered on myself and my own interests, I will not covet what they have, but I will take delight that they have it. And we do this and so much more. (sighs) Oh, you guys. (laughs) We do this because we love Jesus. We do this because we love Jesus. And we can't do this if we don't love Jesus. We live loving because he's our king. He is our king. And he said this in John 13. I give you a new command. Wish we could preach on that. How's this new Jesus? We don't have time today. Love one another. Listen to this. Love one another just as I have loved you. You got to think about how he's loved you.
in that way, you are also to love one another. And by this, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, if. So there's a condition here. If you love one another. Which means, what happens if we don't love one another? They're not going to know we're his disciples. So you live with a debt. A debt of love that you can never repay. <laughs> Anybody seen the movie Groundhog Day? <laughs> right? Like, like, like you, you wake up, and I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love my coworkers, and I love my neighbors, and I go to sleep, and I wake up thinking, all right, I paid all my debt. Oh, crud scouts. I owe the same debt I did yesterday. I have not made any progress whatsoever. I have an obligation to love my wife and to love my kids and to love my neighbors and to love my crabby co-worker and I go to sleep and I, and I wake up and I'm like, oh man, I'm glad. Oh, and here I am again. <laughs> you lay down to sleep, you rise to a new day and you face the fact that the debt is not paid off and it will never be paid off. Now, I could imagine that that could feel crushing. That could feel overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh. Have you ever had a credit card bill and you're thinking, I just so want to be done with this. This payment, I so want to be done with it. It can feel crushing. Okay, more on that in a moment. How that doesn't need to feel crushing to you. But first, I want to see another reason we need to see that we need to do this. Because the king who said to live this way, he's coming back. That's why we need to do this. He's coming back and he's coming back soon. And we need to ask ourselves, do we understand the time that we're living in? That it is the last days. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. Do you know the time? <laughs> History is marked by it, despite what our culture wants to do to remove the actual marker A.D. from every day of every year. We live what? In the year of what? The Lord. We live in the time after the Messiah has come in an age when the new kingdom has broken in and all is not yet fulfilled. We live, write this down, the now and not yet. We live in a now and not yet time. You got to have that phrase in your head. Now and not yet. Now and not yet. That'll help you live in this time. We live in light of the promise that one day the kingdom will be fulfilled. That's the not yet. But it's coming. He's coming. And we must keep this ever before our eyes, which I know can be hard. I know that's hard. It's hard for me to keep every day before my eyes. Today could be the day. It's easy to let this slip from our minds, this truth, that right now, our salvation, verse 11, our full and final rescue is nearer than when we first believed. When you wake up in the morning, one of the things that you could say is, one day closer. We exist to grow one step closer and every day we're growing one day closer. And so if you find yourself lumbering, slumbering through this age, if you find yourself groggy and sleepy about whose you are and who you are and what you are called to, Wake up! It's time for you to wake up. Like, 
When my alarm goes off, God help me every day at 4.55 a.m. George said the other day, you get up before God gets up. I think he might be right. And when you wake up like that, then you realize the night is nearly, because at 4.55, the night is nearly over. It ain't over yet. And the day is near. What day? What day is Paul talking about? That's near. The last day, the end of days, the day of the return of King Jesus. And because we understand time biblically, we understand that even if his return may not be imminent, we know that it's still near. And so we must be watchful. We must be vigilant as Jesus himself instructed. Listen to him. This is Jesus. Now concerning the day or hour, no one knows. No one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Wow! But only the Father. And so what does he say in response to that reality that he just teaches? Watch! Be alert! If you don't know when the time is coming, therefore, listen, and if, <laughs> listen to how many times he says it. Therefore, be alert! Since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert! Paul said it this way to his friends in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and following. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. Why? Because you already know. I've told you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then at that time, you know, what are they? Oh, peace and security. You don't got to worry. Don't, don't be watchful. Don't be alert. It's peace and security. Then it's at that time that sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman. <laughs> Andrea. <laughs> Sister. <laughs> and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, you, listen how close this is to Romans. You are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all what? Children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep like the rest of the world, but let us stay awake. And because we're awake, we're self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and let us put on the armor. 1312, do you see that? Of faith and what? Love. And a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, this time he's talking about death, whether we're alive or dead, we may live together with Jesus. Therefore, <laughs> just said all that to you, therefore what are you supposed to do with it? Encourage one another and build each other up day after day in these truths. We should be telling each other, today could be the day. Today, how are you doing today? One day closer, sister. We must encourage one another and build each other up because the night is nearly over and the day is near. And that is a great promise. That is a great promise that the day is coming. I'm so eager for that. Maranatha come, Lord Jesus. And this is so critical and so fundamental to living, loving. Listen to how one author puts it. 
The Christian is committed to the belief that the world's new day dawned with Jesus, the Messiah. And that ever since his resurrection, the world has been caught in the overlap between the old and the new. Seen here as the moment just before the full dawn, right? Now and not yet. When those who know their business are already up and behaving as in the daytime. That's us. The mental, moral, emotional, and spiritual effort required to sustain belief in what theologians call inaugurated eschatology, right? The kingdom has been inaugurated but not yet consummated. That may at times seem impossible. Do you feel like that? Come on, can we be honest? Like that just feels so impossible to have this constantly in front of us. But the effort, this author says, the effort must be made. We must make this effort because without it, Christian moral teaching can easily degenerate into apparently baseless or even pointless exhortations. There's no, there's no kick in it. Like, well, why should I obey? I got time. You, you, you don't know that. I mean, he could come back. You could walk out there get hit by a car, and, and it's over. Jesus will come back. So how should we live? Okay, so that's the moment that I said, we're at the moment I said, in a moment I'm gonna talk about how can I live in this way with this debt and obligation that I face every morning when I wake up and that that doesn't feel crushing. Here's how. This is the hope of the Christian. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In light of love, in light of the last days, because we know the time we live in, we shed the deeds of darkness. That's not who we are anymore. That's not where we live. We are children of light and children of the day. Even the world knows the difference, don't they? For centuries, humanity has equated evil and wickedness with the time of the night. Goodness and righteousness with the time of the day. From ancient times to modern times, this has always been so. And as followers of Jesus, we must shed the deeds of darkness and shake off those clothes and cast away that behavior. Instead, verse 13, let us walk. In other words, live, the word means. Let us live with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, Unless you think, because, you know, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do really bad sins like that. He doesn't let you skate by. Not in quarreling. Man, every, that's the respectable sin of the church. Oh, you know, I just kind of fight a little with my neighbor. I'm a little jealous now and again, but I, I don't sleep around. You know, they're the real sinners. Paul speaks this way because he sees it up close in his culture. One historian writes, you only have to read accounts of Greco-Roman symposia, the drinking parties that they had, or, or various religious festivals, see Dionysius, to know what Paul was getting at. Greco-Roman revelry could make a frat house toga party look like a convent. Paul is centuring a type of rapacious party culture that featured wild excess, drinking bouts, sexual immoralities of every kind, and violent quarreling. Or as I like to call it, this historian says, Las Vegas during spring break with Caligula as MC. And how, how many people do we know who drift through life like this? 
doing the same things, zombie-like. They're just sleeping their way through their lives. How many times have maybe you said or a friend has said they woke up the next morning and what did they say? What have I done? What was I thinking? You, you weren't. You were just sleeping. We have to shed the trappings of darkness and do what? What shall we put in their place? He's already told us, hasn't he? What's it say in the text? What do we put in its place? The armor of light. What does armor do? It protects you from harm. Keeps you safe from things that would hurt you or destroy you or kill you. It removes vulnerability. It provides protection. But what is this armor of light that Paul speaks of? Do you see it in the text? What is it? It's Jesus. Verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Messiah. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here we find the Lord of love. Here we find the possibility of love. Here we find the power for love and the protection that love provides. Here we find freedom from any fear that we can have of the last day because of what Jesus has done for us in the present day. Look at Romans 6. Turn back there. Verse 11 to 14. You too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Messiah Jesus. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. Romans 8, we saw, so then brothers and sisters, we are not obligated. There's that word again. We are not obligated to the flesh. To live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if, what? By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what has Paul said? Take off, put on. Christ like clothes, shed deeds of darkness. Get rid of them, cast them away. And what do you do? You put on armor, right? That's what you do. Armor, right? This is what I want, yeah. What is the armor? What's protecting me? We read the biographies of Jesus. And we see who he was and live as he did, loving. And we fulfill the law. We look to Jesus and we, we look like him. We follow his teachings. We encourage each other with his teachings. We instruct others with his teachings because that's how he told us to go and make and grow one step closer to him as disciples. See Matthew 28, 16 to 20. We listen to the apostles who teach us that we are in him and he is in us. And in this way, we see that we are protected from the darkness. Nothing can get in. I've got an armor of light. Oh man, and just like get out there and let's go. Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I'm ready. Come on, Satan. Give me your best. I can take it because I'm in Christ. By acting in love, everyone will know that we are disciples of Jesus. And the world not only knows that we are disciples of Jesus by our love, but whether we are disciples of Jesus by our love. Love. Can they see bright, shining armor of light? 
when you're in their presence. Francis Safer says it this way. Worship team, would you come up? Jesus gives the world the right to judge. Listen. Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are truly Christians on the basis of our observable love towards one another. Jesus gives the world that right. I don't see it in you. That, there's a sense in which I think in a very real way, and Schaefer says it, that's frightening. I mean, that, that should sober us. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're sobered that, you know what? Holy cats, I've been, I've been just sleeping my way through my life. I, I haven't been actively loving each other, loving others. I, my life isn't marked by this. It's not foundational to who I am. I, I think mostly about myself and not about others. And, and, and maybe you're just convicted by that, not shamed. That's Satan. There could be voices in your head right now that are of the evil one trying to bring shame upon you right now. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. But here's the beautiful news. Even though we might be sobered by that and we're being, that's being revealed to us right now, that's a good kind of pain. It's okay. Why? Because now we get to look and see. Right, like we just sang and we're gonna sing again right now. Listen, <laughs> we're gonna end with good news that, that he can put the armor on us. He can fit us exactly the way that we need to be fit. We can take up a a shield of faith and and we can put on the breastplate of righteousness and and we can shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the spirit in our hand and the helmet of salvation on our head and looking to him. So stand and sing of the great hope that you have in Jesus to make us all loving.